the plagues of Egypt, a prelude to the Passover. Many of us, I believe, are rather familiar, or at least we are familiar in a general sense of the ten plagues of Egypt. They are well known, they're famous, they're among some of the earliest stories that children might learn typically uh, when they learn Bible stories. So everyone's heard about the plagues of Egypt. We have some sense of the reason and we have some sense of the end. We're not unfamiliar with the plagues of Egypt, but they are a prelude to the Passover. In fact, uh, some Bible chronologists would argue that the ten plagues of Egypt occurred in a 40-day period prior to the moment known as the Passover, the death of the firstborn, the, when the angel, when God's uh, presence and God's death angels, however that, that all unfolded, passed over the homes that had the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. Whether or not that's true, I have not really confirmed if it was a 40-day period, but that's what some chronologists argue. Now, the plagues of Egypt, although we're familiar with them, I think there's a lot that we can learn if we dig into them a little bit deeper in the context of preparing for Passover and in the context of leading up to the 10th plague and leading up to that important and mighty evening known as the Passover. So let's begin with just a little bit of a sense of the historic context for these ten plagues. First of all, we need to understand that when this occurred, we're looking at approximately 490 B.C. or 460 B.C. It may depend on who, you, who you'd like, like to follow, but that's not our point. So this is some 1,500 years prior to Christ, 3,500 years ago in world history approximately. At that time, Egypt was the mightiest of the nations of the ancient world. There might only be one or two other nations that could even possibly challenge Egypt in its power, its wealth, and its might. And that might be over in the Mesopotamian basin. Egypt was a, a large nation. We don't think of Egypt as being a large nation now, but on, in the scale and the time frame of the ancient world it was. It was focused on the Nile Valley. The valley is not particularly wide, but it's nearly 500 miles in length. All of that Nile Valley was exceedingly fertile, fertile, exceedingly excellent soil. Out of the wealth of the Nile River Valley, the, the Egyptians brought forward tremendous amount of agriculture. And Egypt had cattle, they had horses, they had crops, they double-cropped typically throughout the year. They had tremendous agricultural wealth, and that agricultural wealth translated into tremendous wealth in every other way. By the time the Israelites were there, of course, Egypt had, was politically unified and powerful. They'd already built great monuments, giant and tremendous structures of stone, enormous temples, some of the pyramids, if not all of the pyramids, had been built already. So this was a time in history when the children of Israel had come to the land of Egypt when Jacob was still alive. They had fallen into bondage. They had fallen into oppression. But they were in the land of Egypt and they were being oppressed and under the bondage of the mightiest nation on the planet. Now, Israel itself, as we know, were slaves, and the work and the labor was hard. 
But one thing that we may not tend to recognize to the extent that we probably ought to, and I think it can be, I think it can be fairly shown that at least in part the Israelites were rather apostatized. The Israelites had grown in numbers, but I don't believe they had grown in spiritual maturity during their time in the land of Egypt. And so by the time we come to the days of Moses and the Israelites were in bondage, they were, in, they were not necessarily faithful, devoted worshipers of Jehovah. We can see some indications that certainly some probably were, but they were not as a unified people in the land of Goshen, particularly dedicated to Jehovah. Now, it'd be worthwhile for us to recap the ten plagues. Now, all of us know that Moses was the leader at the time of the Israelites. Years ago, Moses had been saved from the river. He'd been brought up in the house of Pharaoh. We know how he had to flee the land of Pharaoh as a young man. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. At the age of about 80, he returned to the land of Egypt, and God had handpicked Moses to be the agent by which God would choose to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And thus we come to the ten plagues. So to recap those ten plagues, let's just begin and go through each one of them briefly. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have time to read all of the passages. The plagues are described in quite a bit of detail in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. So we have about six chapters devoted to the plagues. It describes each of the plagues one at a time. Some of the plagues, we only have a, a four, five, six verses. Several of the plagues, we have nearly a whole chapter devoted to them. So there's quite a bit of information uh, that, and, and that can be derived about the, the, the nature of how each plague was called forth and some of the details. They're, they are rather, it is rather interesting reading. But we won't read any of that. I've got the verses listed there, and so I hope in your own time you'll take time to look that over. Or, as I speak, you can kind of run your eyes down the verses in Exodus chapters 7 through 12 as we go through each one of them. And I encourage you to do that, really. So if you'd open up your Bible to Exodus 7, and as, as I discuss each one, you can cast your eyes on the verses that are there. Now, of course, the first one is well-remembered, and this is when the river... The great Nile River was turned into blood. And for seven days, the river was blood. And so there were a series of consequences that came from this. One that is mentioned is that the fish died. And we think about what, how people reacted. Well, there was some distress among the Egyptians and among Pharaoh, but it was not all that dramatic. We keep reading and we discover that they discovered that they could dig wells to get their water. So they moved away from the river bank, where they would gather the river typically out of the river, and they dug wells, and they were able to find fresh water that way. So the seven days passed, and the river cleared up. That was the river turning to blood. The next plague that came were the frogs. And most of us don't care for frogs. It describes how frogs overtook the land. And apparently the Egyptians found them in their homes. They found them in their cook pots. Found them in their beds. 
just found frogs everywhere. Well, that would have been rather unpleasant. But we keep reading and we discover that the second plague passed. It was what we might call a temporary crisis. Captured the Egyptians' attention somewhat, but Pharaoh was completely unmoved. The third plague, this was lice. Now, most of us have probably not spent much time with lice. Lice are a pretty serious annoyance. They are an exceptionally serious annoyance. Typically, they are not life-threatening. Throughout history, lice have been a rather common affliction to men. And for some people, they just live with lice in their beds and in their hair, and that's just what you live with. It doesn't kill you. It's a common annoyance. It's a, it's, it goes on and on, and it's got all kinds of irritations. But the lice were called forth next. Now, these lice on man and beast were, was interesting. Now, at this point, with the third plague, something interesting happened. In the first two, the magicians of Egypt and Pharaoh's professional charmers were able to mimic the first two. But with the third one, the magicians failed. And it's at this point that all of the advisors and the magicians to Pharaoh began to say, this isn't normal. This, there's something's going on here that we don't understand. And in fact, the magician said, we think this might be the hand of God. This is the finger of God. This is something beyond us. And you'd better be, start paying attention. Well, the Pharaoh rejected that counsel. And that takes us to number four. The fourth one were the flies. And the flies swarm and cover Egypt. This also, it is interesting that this is the first plague that is mentioned specifically that Goshen, where the children of Israel lived, Goshen was exempt from this particular plague. Now, some scholars, they kind of debate back and forth. There are some scholars who will say that the first three plagues, the children of Israel suffered as well. Others say, well, no, it may be that, that, that they actually didn't suffer any of them. So there's a little bit of debate whether or not they had suffered the, the frogs and so forth. But nonetheless, we understand that, that Goshen was specifically exempted from the flies. So the children of Israel did not suffer this. That was something that sort of captured the attention of Pharaoh, but only temporarily. <clears throat> the next one that's mentioned is a grievous moraine. And the word murrain is not used nowadays very often, but it's an illness, an ailment, a, a, a physical affliction, a disease. And the disease was upon the cattle, the livestock. It was a grave livestock disease that, in which the cattle of the Egyptians began to drop, just, just fall over dead. And it spread apparently like wildfire among the livestock. Bible tells us that the Israelite cattle, however, remained healthy. So again, the Israelites are exempt. So this is really beginning to increase the pressure and capture the attention of Pharaoh a little bit more. But we really get his attention now when we go to number six, the painful boils, the boils. Now this appears to be the very first plague on the people in which it might be a very grave 
affliction on the Egyptian people themselves. Certainly the frogs and the lice were an annoyance, but for the poorer classes, lice would have not been anything, probably not the first time they'd experienced lice. But boils was something different now. It was beginning to afflict not just their cattle and not just be a grave and serious annoyance, but now it was getting really downright troublesome, downright serious, because now all the Egyptian people are ill with the boils. Number seven is the hail. Now, the description of the hail takes up a lot of verses in Scripture, and if, if you don't read anything else, you might enjoy reading about the, the, the many verses in the Bible that describe the hail. It tells us that the hail was a, a hail that, was, that had fire connected to it, fiery hail. So this wasn't an ordinary hailstorm. It describes it as something that had never before been seen. All of the other plagues so far, they were something that had been seen before in time and in history, or pretty much. Maybe not the river turning to blood quite that, but that, all these others so far, the frogs and the lice and so forth, the disease, was something that they could, they could argue, well, you know, that's pretty bad. But, you know, we've seen it before, and it'll probably, it might pass. But this had never, ever been seen before. It talks about the destruction of the crops at length, the, the terror of the hail. It gives you the sense that if you were outside, the hail would be fatal. So if you were to not have the shelter of a strong building, it could kill you. So the reading of the, the verses on the hail might be worth your time. Pharaoh is, is beginning to, he's beginning to wonder. He's really starting to have some serious concerns now. But we move on to number eight, <clears throat> the locusts. The locusts are described as coming in from one side of Egypt out of the desert and then passing on. Eventually, they're cast off into the Red Sea. But the locusts devour all the greenery Everything that had any green growth whatsoever in Egypt that had not yet been destroyed by the hail, now it was destroyed by the locusts. Pharaoh is beginning to show a lot of signs of cracking because Pharaoh understands what this means. This means that a deadly famine is going to follow because now not only were some of the crops destroyed, but all of the crops had been destroyed and something that Egypt had perhaps never before experienced was a famine. That was a unique thing for Egypt. That's what made Egypt such a powerful nation. Many places in the world, in the ancient world, experienced famines on a routine basis. Egypt was known to never have famines because of the regularity and the reliability of the water of the Nile River. Combined with their rich soil, they always had food. Always had had food. But this was something new. Number nine is the darkness. The darkness is not described in great detail. And you wouldn't think much about the darkness except for one particular unique fact. I mean, you say, well, okay, so it's going to be dark for three days. I can handle that. I mean, it's dark for... You know, it's dark 12 hours every night, three days, what would that be, 72 straight hours? Well, we can probably manage that without too much trouble. But what frightened people so much is, is the Bible describes this 
as a darkness that you can feel. Now, I don't even know what that means, and there have been plenty of people who speculate on what that might mean, but it had a frightening effect that was unique. This was not an ordinary darkness. It says the Israelite homes had light. Now, for whatever reason, you get the sense from reading it over and over again, you get the sense that the Egyptian homes didn't have light in them. That is to say, for whatever reason, some reason, apparently this darkness was so complete that an ordinary lamps and candles wouldn't work, wouldn't pierce the darkness. It doesn't say that, but if you read it, you get the sense in the contrast with the Israelites having light in their homes that apparently the Egyptians couldn't even light up their homes with the ordinary means that you might with lamps and candles. And finally, of course, we have the great one, the death of the firstborn. Now, what makes the death of the firstborn so special and so unique is that it was the firstborn. Now, what that means is this. There's a series of implications from the death of the firstborn. First of all, the Bible makes it quite clear that every single household in the land of Egypt suffered this death. And it tells us specifically from the lowest uh, criminal in a dungeon all the way up to the, the household of Pharaoh, the firstborn was going to die. So that's a, that's a catastrophic event in and of itself. But the selectivity of it is what's interesting. The selectivity of it is, is, is frightening in the sense that this was unlike maybe some other pandemic or some other plague, the bubonic plague. You know, we've all heard about the bubonic plague in medieval Europe, where about a third of the population was wiped out. And when it struck your town in the course of two or three weeks, a third of the entire population of the entire town, maybe half of it, was dead. But what's different about this is it was only the firstborn. If you were the second, third, fourth, or fifthborn, no problem. If you were the firstborn, there was no hope. So you couldn't say, well, it killed the weak ones, but left the healthy ones okay. You couldn't say, it killed the old ones, but left the young ones safe. Or it killed the small ones, but the mature ones were stronger and survived. It didn't matter whether you were healthy or whether you were frail. It didn't matter if you were old or young. If you were firstborn, you were a goner. So there was no way to explain how this possibly could be except a divinely selected death. It was selective. It was particularly targeted. It was targeted in a divinely selective way, which made it really different than any other kind of, 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 of judgment you might think of. Now, a lot of scholars have really tried to dissect these ten plagues. Uh, one of the things that seems to be pretty obvious and which we could really sink our teeth into and agree upon is that the plagues increase in human destructiveness. The early plagues we could reckon as, you know, annoyances, strong annoyances, but hardly deadly. But they increase in their destructiveness in terms of both property, but also destructiveness in terms of affecting human life. Until finally the last one, 
was utterly devastating. So we see that. Other scholars have tried to really divide these out. If you like to read about this sort of thing, some people will say, well, the, the first three are very similar, and then the second three are very similar, and then the third three are very similar, and number, the last one stands out by itself. Or others say, well, it's kind of more like the first five were similar and the last five were similar. Or some will say, and some of them used Moses and some of them used Aaron's rod, and they kind of go through all this sort of thing and trying to, 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 to deduce some sort of pattern which we might be able to drive some sort of meaning out of that. And maybe all that's useful. I'd like to just call your attention to for a few minutes, though, some of the ways that these plagues have been dissected and explained by scholars. Scholars have spent plenty of time looking into this, and they still do. There's a lot of people, really smart people, who really dived into these plagues and examined them from every direction you can think of. Backward, forward, inside out. Looking at the biblical text in every detail, looking at other sources, studying Josephus and reading other accounts, or looking at what they know about natural history and so forth and so on. And there's a lot of information out there if you really want to study it and, and look into it. But basically, they fall into three broad categories. Now, the first scholarly way that people have really examined this is what's called the naturalistic approach. Now, the naturalistic approach is very, very popular, particularly popular with skeptics. Now, of course, some skeptics will dismiss the idea of the plagues altogether, and they'll say, well, you know, we can't find any hieroglyphic records carved on the walls of the Egyptian tombs that tell us this story, so probably it's just all made up. Well, I'm not talking about the skeptics that are that skeptical. I'm just talking about the skeptics who will say, well, we'll take the Bible record, and we'll, we'll assume that that's, that's true, but it needs to be sort of, you know, we've got to fill in the blanks, we've got to massage it, and we've got to come up with a, some other explanation beyond simply the finger of God. And so the naturalistic approach is somewhat popular with people who t- lean toward the skeptical side. So typically this is the way it goes. And this is one of the most popular naturalistic approaches. They typically are going to argue that the first plague pretty much triggered all of the others. And one of the most popular theories is that somehow there was some sort of a plague of red mud. Another one has suggested sort of a red algae or some red substance that's in the water that poisons the Nile River for about a week. And they'll say that then that that red poison in the river, be it red thick mud or some other substance that got in the river, that triggered a series of follow-up plagues. By you know, it causes the fish to die, and then the, the frogs multiply because they're able to hop up on the bank, and then the frogs die, and that brings in the lice and the flies and so forth and so on because the frogs are rotting and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they look at it in a very naturalistic approach. And then toward the end, they'll say, well, there are probably other subsequent disasters, maybe volcanoes and dust storms, particularly popular to describe the, the, the darkness by terms of some sort of a volcanic explosion and maybe some sort of black cinder ash, some sort of fine powder fell from the sky on top of, 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 the, of the Egyptians, something of this nature. So they have these naturalistic explanations. I don't particularly like the naturalistic explanations, however well-intended they may be. And I've seen just a few people who've done some pretty interesting videos in this direction, and they are very fascinating to watch. 
but I, they leave me a little uncomfortable because it tends that they, they tend to be a little bit strained in their explanations, but the real thing that bothers me is it tends to dishonor God in the text. It takes away from the power, the miraculous power of God, and it's looking for some sort of naturalistic explanation. And while some are going to say, well, yeah, but this is just the means by which God did it. Well, if that was the means by which God did it, probably there would be a little few more clues in the text of Scripture that would describe it in, in those terms. So I'm a little bit uh, uneasy with this particular approach, the naturalistic approach. A second approach is interesting, particularly if you have a, a real gift for details and really enjoy trying to draw parallels with one part of Scripture with the next. This one is, a, is, is an explanation in which they draw a parallel between the ten plagues of Egypt and ten statements of God in Genesis chapter number 1. Now, the number 10 rings out strongly in the minds of these people. Now, some people have tried to take the 10 plagues of Egypt and somehow correspond them to the 10 commandments of God. Well, that's pretty hard to do, really. They just don't seem to fit, even though you've got 10 of each. and You say, well, there's got to be a correspondence there. Well, it, it, it doesn't really fit particularly well. <laughs> so that one's not particularly popular. But this Genesis chapter 1 theory seems to have some adherence, in which they take the statements in Genesis 1, which we won't read, but if you read through the statements of Genesis 1, I've got the verses listed that they like to land on. And it says, and God said, in verse 3, let there be light. And they'll correspond that to the first plague. And they'll say, let, and God said this, let, there, let this happen. And God said this, let this happen. And so they're going to try to draw a parallel between the ten statements and God said in Genesis 1 with the ten plagues of Egypt. And what they're really trying to do is try to say that there's sort of a, the, the correspondence is sort of a flip side of each other, or sort of uh, an inverse relationship between them, in which essentially they're arguing that God's creative work corresponds to his destructive might. Over here he has ten creative acts that lead to the creation of the world, and here he has ten destructive acts that lead to the, to the uh, destruction, in, in a sense, of the greatest nation on earth, Egypt. I found this study to be a bit interesting, but I'll, still I find it a little bit strained. In my personal opinion, I find it a little bit strained. Furthermore, I can't really figure out what we're supposed to learn from this approach. It seems like there's very little to be learned from that approach. It's interesting. Maybe there's something to it. I'm not really convinced there is but it seems like there's not that much to be learned. Now, the third scholarly approach for people that like to examine the plagues, this one seems to have some merit. Now, in this case, they're going to suggest that the ten plagues were a systematic destruction of the Egyptian pantheon. And they do have, there is a good reason why, a biblical reason why you might try to make this argument. Let me read for you out of the story of the plagues Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. Now this is a description of the last plague. Exodus 12, 12, plague 10, the, the death of the firstborn. It reads like this. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. That phrase, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, is a statement worth reflecting on. And, and, and essentially, they're trying to say, look, God is trying to systematically, through these ten plagues, destroy the Egyptian pantheon of gods. One by one, we'll take down all of the gods of Egypt and show that they're all false, powerless, and frivolous, and that there's only one true God, and that's Jehovah. And there may be some merit there. And if we go through each of them, if you'd like to, on your outline, I've given you the names of the gods of Egypt that somewhat correspond to the ten plagues. Regarding blood, we have the god Isis. The goddess Isis was the goddess of the Nile River. She's a relatively well-known goddess, pagan goddess, Isis. Some of you have probably heard of Isis. The frog god, Hecate, he, was a, he had a frog head and a man's body. Probably haven't heard of him. They had a god of lice, Set. He was also the god of the desert. I'm not sure that's a real good fit, but that's what is argued. They also had a god of flies, Uachit, god of the flies. I don't know if he's a popular one, but that's the name. Now here's one you maybe have heard of, a popular one. Apis. Apis was the god of bulls, the god of cattle. He was a big bull. Apis, a bull god. And when the, the grievous moraine destroyed the cattle and livestock, it was a direct blow to Apis. Then we have boils. That can be corresponded to the god of diseases, Sunu, the god of diseases. Then we have hail, Osiris. He was the god of crops, god of crops. The hail, of course, destroyed the crops of Egypt. Then we have the locusts. He was a sky god, Newt, Newt the sky god. Darkness. Now this is a relatively well-known, actually two gods, father and son, if I recall the, the way they've got the pantheon organized. Ray and Horus, associated with the sun. Of course, the sun would have been blocked out from in the darkness. And then finally, returns back to Isis, who is also the protector of children. She was the protector of children, and she obviously failed when the firstborn were destroyed. Now, there may be some merit in this line of reasoning, because of the verse I did articulate, that, that this was intended to destroy the pantheon of Egypt. It had, they had many, many gods. In fact, they had so many gods that you could make this case probably no matter what happened. And the reason we could say that no matter what the ten plagues were, you could have one of the plagues could have been toenail fungus, and you probably could still find one of the Egyptian deities that corresponded to people's toes. The Egyptian pantheon, they don't even, they're not even sure. Scholars are not even sure how many deities they had. But it's somewhere between 700 and 2,000 of them. Somewhere between 700 and 2,000, depending on which Egyptologist you ask, how many deities they had in ancient Egypt. So you could certainly find some kind of a correspondence no matter what the event was. 
Now, as interesting as this uh, last approach is, that the ten plagues are a systematic destruction of the Egyptian pantheon, in my view, this may still be missing the main point. Some of the main points, I think, are still not there for us. So I want to turn your attention now to what the Bible says elsewhere. It turns out that the Bible has more than one account of the ten plagues. And I'd like everyone to turn with me to the book of Psalms. And we're going to read a couple of passages out of the book of Psalms. In Psalm 78, and then in Psalm 105, we have a written account, a written recount of the plagues of Egypt. So let's read these briefly and see what we can derive. Because there's at least these two other biblical accounts of the plagues seem to suggest another approach that seems to suggest that maybe the approaches I've given you are maybe a little bit of over-analysis that are are kind of sort of the case where you're not seeing the forest for the trees. And maybe there's bigger and more important points than what we've looked at already. Let's read Psalm 78. Now, why don't you read this with me? I would encourage the whole congregation to get involved here. We're going to read Psalm 78. We're going to read a few verses together. Let's start in verse number, tell you what, I've got written down 44, but let's start in verse 43. So if you have your Bibles, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like the congregation to read verse 43, and then we'll carry on down alternately to 51. Psalm 78, 43 to 51. I'd like everybody to read. Everybody join in the reading here, reading responsibly. You start and I'll follow in Psalm 78, beginning in verse 43, down to 51. Are we ready? Let's begin. Go. And had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent divers. He gave also their increase unto the caterpillar, and their labor unto the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail, and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. He passed along them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels among them. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death but gave their life over to the pestilence. And so all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of man. All right, thank you very much. So before we, I call your attention to a few points out of that passage, let's go to the other account. Flip over a few pages to Psalm 105, if you would, please. It's not far. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 105. And let's begin... I'll tell you what, let's start at verse 26, and we're going to read down to verse 36. Here is another account of the plagues of Egypt. Psalm 105, we'll start in verse 26, we'll read down to 36. As a group, let's begin. Are we ready? Everyone ready? You start in 26, and I'll follow. Ready, set, go. He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron, whom he has chosen. They showed his signs among them, and wonders in the land of Ham. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth 
he spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came and had and did eat up all the herbs in their land, and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also all the firstborn in their land, and the sheep of all their strength. Now, now that we're finished, thank you, let's consider something. You will notice that in the case of Psalm 78, if you study it and reread it a couple of times, that this is not a complete list. Not all ten plagues are mentioned in Psalm 78. You can read it a couple of times and you'll see that it omits, in Psalm 78, it omits the lice and the murrain and the darkness. Now, if we read 105, we'll see that that's not a complete list either. In 105, the list of plagues omits the murrain and the boils. So what's going on here? Now, some people are going to say, well, boy, that's not very good. If you're supposed to tell the story of the ten plagues of Egypt, and you're supposed to encourage your children to know it, and if the Psalms are a song, and you want the song to be a teaching tool to reinforce this important Bible story, and there's ten plagues, shouldn't you list all ten plagues? Wouldn't it be kind of odd to leave out one or two or three? And it happened twice. And in fact, the poor murrain, it didn't, it got left out of both. <laughs> so, what does that mean? What does that mean when, when, when we find that the two of the best accounts in the other portions of Scripture that describe this and are meant to recount the story actually don't get all ten there? What does that mean? Well, I think actually it might mean something. I don't think it means that the person who wrote the book of Psalms was incompetent. I don't think that it meant that the scribe who wrote the story was incompetent, the person who made the copies. I don't think there were translation errors or omissions or fumbles or bumbles. And I don't think that whoever was inspired by God to give the account in Psalm 78 and 105 somehow just screwed up. Now, somehow to us, and with a Western mindset, and particularly those of us who enjoy details, and particularly someone who's like an engineer like Dan over there, if you said, hey, I want you to tell the story, and you leave out some of the pertinent facts, you're going to say, well, you did a very bad job. That's not very good at all. You get a, you get a D minus maybe a C, barely a passing grade. You can't even remember all 10. But we've got to reject that kind of thinking. And we have to look at it from a different kind of a perspective. So I think the point might be this. When we recount the story of the plagues and we think about the larger picture and we think about what lessons maybe ought to be derived from the story, and we haven't done that yet, but we're going to now. It turns out that it could be that the actual number of plagues really isn't all that critical. I mean, would it really matter if God used 10 plagues or 7 plagues? Or if God used 12 plagues? Or maybe why not 13 plagues? 
God could have used any number of plagues, and all of the same points would have eventually been made. All of the same lessons could have been learned. So whether it was seven plagues, or ten plagues, or twelve or thirteen plagues, or however it all worked out in terms of the numbers of the plagues, all of the same lessons could be learned, and would have been learned. And in fact, it might be that it might not really matter all that much what the plagues were. Whether they were plagues of this type of insect or that type of insect. Or whether it was a plague of this type of natural storm or that type of natural storm. Whether it was, you know, would it have mattered if it was eight feet of snow instead of a bunch of hail? It might not have mattered. So it might not really matter all that much exactly what the plagues were, nor might it even matter all that much how many plagues there were. If that's the case, what are the kind of lessons that we ought to draw from this story rather than trying to overanalyze the details and instead step back and look at it from a human perspective, look at, look at it from a moral perspective, and try to look at it from a spiritual perspective? What were the lessons that should have been learned then, and what are the lessons that we ought to be relearning now, particularly in light of the fact that all of this is culminating with the death of the firstborn and the great deliverance known as Passover, which is hard upon us now in terms of a celebration of that great event, the, the Passover. All right, first of all, one of the most obvious lessons that had to be learned by them and has to be relearned by every generation since then is that everyone has to learn that Jehovah is the only God. So both the Egyptians and the Israelites had to learn that Jehovah is the only God. Now you might argue that the Israelites already knew that. But of course that might be premature when you remember other stories that followed. For example, when Moses disappeared, the Israelites made themselves a golden calf, probably to Apis, the bull that was popular in Egypt. So it could be the Israelites, they needed to learn that lesson as well as the Egyptians, that Jehovah is the only God. Well, that seems pretty obvious, so we could move on quickly from that one. But here's one that's difficult for people to learn. And this is a lesson for Israelites, both then and now. You'll recall, and you can study all this out, Moses was the instrumental personality in every one of the plagues. Now you can go through and analyze whether it was Aaron's rod, or was it Moses' rod, or was it Aaron was involved. You know, you could, you could dissect it, but you'd be missing the central point. The central point was that Moses was God's man on the spot. Moses was the authority through that God had chosen to work through. And Israel had to learn to respect Moses. Now from this we can derive a sound and biblical principle that all of us have to learn even today, and it is a hard lesson for many of us. God works through human authorities. Now Moses was not a perfect man, and we could recount in his life several mistakes he made. The Israelites observed those mistakes, 
And at several points in Israel's subsequent history, they openly rebelled against the authority of Moses, much to their hurt. They failed to learn that all of the ten plagues were funneled through Moses. We have to learn the same thing, though. Now, we don't have Moses, and we don't have David, and we don't have St. Paul. But all of us have human authorities. And the human authorities that we find ourselves under are imperfect. We all know this. We experience it, if not daily, certainly probably every week. We see the imperfections of the human authorities under which we labor, under which we live. But those human authorities very well may be and probably are in place because God selected them to be your authority. Now, this is not an easy lesson for children to learn. It's not an easy lesson for adults to learn. And it seems, as I've watched over the years, children become adults. If they did know it as children, quite a few of them forget that lesson as adults. And they suddenly think that I am an independent agent, and I am free of all human authority. And I can do just whatever I doggone well please, and you better not say anything about it. Nobody better raise a peep, because I am an independent agent, independent of all human authority. That's not the way God works, and that's not a principle of Scripture. That is an argument that you have told yourself because you have the same human affliction that all of us struggle with, this, with, and that is you have a heart that has to deal with rebellion. Every one of us must deal with this issue. Now, a third lesson. God increases pressure to stimulate repentance. Now, that's a pretty obvious lesson when we look at the plagues. Now, the plagues increase in intensity. They're not given in Psalm 78, the ones that are listed, in the same order as the ones that are in Psalm 105, nor is either one in the order that they came in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. But again, that doesn't matter. They increased in intensity, and some were simply more memorable than others. In our lives, God uses a similar principle. He increases pressure to stimulate repentance. So as we think in our lives about what we ought to be doing, and in the secret corners of our heart, we think, well, I know I ought to do this, but I just don't feel like it, and I think I'm just not gonna. You can expect that God will increase pressure over time. Now, I don't know how, I don't know when, and I can't describe the pattern, but I think it's a biblical precept, a biblical principle, and it's illustrated in how God interacted with the key person opposing Moses. And that, of course, was Pharaoh. Pharaoh is mentioned a number of times in this story, and it describes how Pharaoh, at some points, hardened his heart. We'll come back to Pharaoh here in a few moments. But understand this, God will increase pressure to stimulate repentance and change in your life. And if, there's, if you're unwilling to bring that change forward, you can anticipate with the passing of the months and years that something greater will happen to you 
that might be worse than what has already happened to you because you refuse to make changes that the Holy Spirit is telling you in the depths of your heart that you ought to make. Next, there's a concept known as incomplete repentance. Most of us have heard of incomplete repentance. Most of us practice at some times in our life incomplete repentance. It is a human failing that all of us struggle with to some degree. Incomplete repentance. Now usually incomplete repentance is simply to avoid the coming judgment. Now in some cases, particularly with those who are very immature, that might be enough to move you forward in life. So if you have a small child, and you know the only reason that they're doing what they're supposed to do is because they don't want to get spanked, well, if they're five years old, that might be enough. That might be good enough. We don't need to dig into their little brain any deeper than to just simply get their obedience for whatever reason. But by the time they become a teenager, it's not simply enough to obey, simply to avoid pain or judgment. By then, the level of maturity ought to be taking us to a point where there are greater reasons we wish to obey than simply avoiding discomfort or pain. And certainly as adults, we would know that simply avoiding the judgment, while that might change the behavior, doesn't get at the root issues. Now, in this case, we are going to be able to say for sure that incomplete re repentance to avoid judgment isn't real repentance. And it's not going to last. It's not going to bring lasting fruit. So it might behoove us to take a few minutes to look at Pharaoh. With the time that we've got, let's read a few verses dealing with Pharaoh. <clears throat> it turns out that God was not interested in Pharaoh negotiating with Moses, his human representative. During the early plagues, Pharaoh completely disregarded Moses and said, get lost. As the plagues increased in intensity, we get down to six, seven, eight, and nine, Pharaoh began to negotiate with Moses. So turn with me to your, your Bible to Exodus chapter eight. I'd like to look at a couple of passages and just analyze what was going on in the mind and the heart of Pharaoh as he interacted with Moses, who was, of course, God's human representative. So in Exodus chapter 8, it might be worthy for us to begin looking at the heart of Moses, excuse me, the heart of Pharaoh and the mind of Pharaoh. So I'm going to read, begin in verse number 25 of Exodus chapter 8. Now this is only number 4. This is only plague number four that we're dealing with, the flies. But they were beginning to be a pretty big annoyance. So in verse 25 of Exodus 8, let's look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It's not meet to do so. For we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? So you see what Pharaoh said. He said, okay, I'll let you do your sacrificing, but you got to do it here in this land. He was beginning to negotiate with Moses. Moses said, no, 
that's not going to work. Moses offered an alternative in verse 27. He said, we'll go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord our God as He shall command. And then Pharaoh says in verse 28, I will let you go that you may sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. All right, you can go into the wilderness, but don't go very far away. I've got to keep my eye on you. Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh. Well, if we keep reading, we discover that's exactly what happened. The flies went away at Moses' word. But, if we keep reading, in verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time. Neither would he let the people go. Pharaoh reneged on the deal. He had negotiated with Moses, and Pharaoh changed his mind as soon as the pressure was released. Well, that would be very much like a child that you have trouble dealing with. And as long as the pressure is hot, they're cooperative, but when the pressure is released, they slip back into their rebellious attitude. Now, Exodus chapter 9, beginning of verse 27, is an interesting dialogue again. Now we're up to plague number 7. Now, the plague number 7, you'll recall, that was the hail. Now, this was getting to be frightening, because nobody had ever seen hail like this, or heard of hail like this ever before. And so Mo- Moses had really, really, he'd really captured Pharaoh's attention. God had really captured Pharaoh's attention. And so now in verse 27, let's see how Pharaoh responds. I'm in Exodus 9:27. Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron, said to them, I've sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. I and my people are wicked. Now that is a huge concession. Pharaoh finally admitted fault. He admitted, I have sinned. God is righteous. My people are wicked. Wow, that was a huge concession. But there's more. Entreat the Lord that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses says, fine, sure. I'll leave your palace. I'll leave the city. I'll call off the thunder, the lightning, the hail, the so and so forth and so on. So Moses goes out, and then if we drop down to the end of the chapter in verse 34, let's see what happened with Pharaoh. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So again, Pharaoh changes his mind. The pressure is off, and he decides not to. Obviously, Pharaoh's repentance was incomplete and not real. Now, if we go to chapter 10, we have yet another interesting account of this pattern. Exodus 10, beginning at verse number 16. Exodus 10, verse 16. Now we're beginning to deal with the next plague, the locusts. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. He said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Forgive me, I pray thee, my sin. And then in verse 19, it says that God turned a mighty west wind and took away the locusts. Now notice what it says in verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so they would not let the children of Israel go. 
that's an interesting phrase. That's an interesting turn. Might not have expected that. That God hardened Pharaoh's heart at this point. I wonder what that means. Well, let's go a little further. But we'll just leave our point that talks about incomplete repentance with this. Avoiding judgment as the primary reason for repentance is not real, it's not genuine, and it's not likely to last. There's something very interesting, though, that takes us in another direction. If we consider the last plague, the tenth plague, now the tenth plague was the worst of all. The tenth plague was worst of all. The death of the firstborn. But you know what? Israel might have been exempt from all the other plagues, Scholars can debate whether or not they were exempt from the early ones. Israel was not really exempt from the last plague unless they did something. Now this is a significant point. The death of the firstborn applied to Israel as well in the land of Goshen unless they did something. And they had to do something that came at the word of Moses that didn't make a lot of sense. But they had to obey. And they had to trust God. And they had to trust Moses. That this was not nonsense. And if they did not trust the word of God through his servant Moses, they would suffer the same disaster as the Egyptians did regarding the death of the firstborn. Now from this, there's something... Well, I'll tell you what, let's read Exodus 12. Before I have more comments, let's read a couple of verses from Exodus 12, just so you get this in your mind. Make sure you understand that what I've told you is, is true and right. So if we break into the middle of the story of the 10th plague, in Exodus chapter 12, and we have the institution of the Passover meal, and so forth, let's begin at verse 12 of Exodus 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The Egyptians would not have this opportunity explained to them. The Israelites would, but yet they had to take action to demonstrate their faith. So if we drop down to verse number 21, let's read about it just a little more. Moses called for all the elders of Israel, said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord shall smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your house to smite you. Now, we've heard this story so many times that we think it's reasonable and sensible. But it, 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 in a, it, it, I don't know that it is. 
I'm not so sure it is. Now, the Israelites were acquainted with the idea of a sacrifice. But this is new, taking blood and smearing blood all over your door. Now, why would you do that? And why would that make sense? And why should I think about doing that? When has this ever happened before? When were we ever told to do this before? And by the way, why blood? I mean, blood on the door, I guess it'll turn it red. But it stinks. Blood smells bad. You smear blood all over your door, come back an hour later, that what a mess. Normally you wipe up the blood. You don't smear it and spread it all over the place. On the surface, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We kind of think it does, but that's only because we've heard the story 40 times. If you heard it for the first time, and there was no precedent for ever doing this before, you might say, this is pretty weird. So you had to take an act of obedience by the word of Moses from Jehovah, and if you didn't, your eldest child would die. That is your eldest son. Your eldest son would die. Well, here's what we need to understand from this. I'd like to call your attention to. Got just a couple of minutes, but we're almost done. Now we're on the fifth lesson that I see out of this that I'd like to call your attention to. Israel is not always exempt from the judgment of evil Israel's evil and malicious enemies. We're not always exempt. Now in our time, we have a lot of evil and malicious enemies. We have sodomites, as we have seen in Nashville recently, or something very much like sodomites. We have the Edomites. They're out there. We have the Marxists. We've got the globalists. We have quite a few people who don't like us and actually hate us and would like us to see us ground into the dirt and be gone forever. Now, one day we would understand that God will judge all of them. They will be judged. They will be judged. And they will be destroyed. That doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt, though. We might not be exempt from the judgment that God brings upon all of our enemies. The children of Israel were not automatically exempt from the judgment of the death of the firstborn. It could be that we might be destroyed along with them if we fail to humbly apply the blood. We must apply the blood. Now, what does that mean? Apply the blood. Apply the blood. Well, applying the blood means we must take the reality of blood sacrifice, whether it be the lamb in ancient times, or whether it be the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in our time, that we have to apply the blood. God is not going to spare you and I when He destroys the Marxists and the Edomites and the Sodomites and so forth if we have not applied the blood. It doesn't matter that we're good people. It doesn't matter that we're moral people. It doesn't matter that we love our country. It doesn't matter that we've done things right. That's not enough. We have to apply the blood. We can't just be better than them. We have to be under the blood. It's not good enough to just be better than them. We have to be under the blood. And it won't always and completely in all times 
make perfect sense. It may be counterintuitive. And it may challenge our rebellious heart to be under the blood. So these aren't easy lessons. They weren't easy for the Israelites then. They're not easy for us now. Now, in God's providence, we've got two more quick points. In God's providence, it could be that God has raised up these enemies for this time because He wishes to afflict us, because He wishes to put pressure upon us, because He wishes them to hate us. Now, you already read the passage a short time ago that tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and later we saw that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's interesting. If we go back to Psalm 105, if we turn to these two, two accounts from the book of Psalms, in Psalm 105, at verse 25, a verse that precedes the list of the ten plagues, or in this case, I believe it was eight plagues, it tells us, dealing with the enemies of Israel in Egypt, it says, God, that is, He turned their heart, God turned their heart to hate His people, to deal subtly with His servants. It turns out that God stimulated the Egyptians to hate the Israelites. God motivated the Egyptians to hate the Israelites. Now, it could be that our enemies, the Sodomites, the Edomites, the Marxists, they may hate us because God has stimulated them to do so. Now, that's a little hard to understand why God would want them to hate us unless we come away with the thought that maybe God is using them to stimulate us to a given response. Could it be that without their hatred, we might not repent? Could it be without their hatred, we would not respond and cry out to God? Indeed, I believe that's the case. Finally, we have a deeply consistent tendency to forget God's help in the past. In Psalm 78, where we read of the first account in the book of Psalms regarding the commandments, excuse me, the, the plagues, we discover it says this about the Israelites. It says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not His hand, nor the day when He delivered them from the enemy. We have a strong habit of forgetting God's help in the past and limiting God's ability to help because we would rather trust in ourselves than in Jehovah. There's an important lesson for each of us there in our lives. And I believe we've got to understand that without God's motivation to move us in the right direction, we ourselves will fail. And we have to be humble enough to yield to God's wishes in our lives. And that's not easy to do. Well, I thank you for your patience as we've examined these plagues of Egypt. 
And as we think about what they might mean as we prepare our own hearts for the celebration of Passover, may God bless each and every one of you, and thank you so much for kindly listening this morning. Amen.